uh, when possible on a Sunday night. I think sometimes, for some reason, we think that uh, not only are we supposed to sing a cappella, but nothing written after about World War II. And so I enjoy bringing in the little bit newer songs every now and then, so I appreciate Jeff and, and him being open to that as well. So this evening, if you're, uh, kind of, if you're new to us, or at least new on Sunday nights, we, we do one of three things usually on Sunday nights. We do have a full, usual sermon we call traditional service, or we do a Devo and a Bible study. Or we have our uh, young men's kind of training and leadership service. And tonight we'll be doing our Devo and Bible study, both of which will draw from our text that we looked at this morning. Uh, there's a lot of discussion content I want us to be able to get to, so we'll just go for a few minutes here in our devotional and save as much as we can for later on. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 is where we'll be. And as you're turning there, I'll mention again our topic this morning was this idea of, of intergenerational ministry or being a multi-generational church. And those are million-dollar words for very simple concepts that we want to be a spiritual family where the lessons that we have learned and the faith that we have developed is passed on from one generation to the next. Many of us have probably learned all sorts of life skills from our parents, from our grandparents, aunts, uncles, many other family members that they passed on to us. And so, so I want us to think about our faith and really the idea of our spiritual community kind of holding that same habit or that same practice. And, and I kind of thought of it this way, that kind of like a special recipe for a casserole or an apple pie. Uh, think of your faith as a, a treasured thing that you want to teach your children and your grandchildren to pass on from one generation to the next. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to read kind of just the, the second half here. I want us to pick up with verse 7 of Titus chapter 2. That is Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are be, to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of the Savior. So in our morning lesson, we looked at each of those first four groups, kind of the first half of the chapter, that Paul identifies the older men, the older women, younger women, younger men. And he says each of them have a part to play in the church. They all contribute to what Paul calls a healthy, growing spiritual family. And we noticed a few. We noted a few different issues that, that crop up with the text that we'll get to later on. But I, I wanted to spend some time just talking about verse seven through verse ten, because Paul identifies each of these first four groups based on age and gender, and then he turns and he actually, if you can tell by the language in the text, he he turns specifically to Titus. He begins speaking, "Show yourself in your teaching and your good works and your." And so he's directing to Titus as the minister. And so it's, it should come as no surprise to us that Paul is saying if you are to minister to a church, your, your actions ought to reflect your word. You ought to be practicing what you preach. And this is how we, we know Paul is telling the truth when he talks about in, in Colossians and in his letters that he had a revelation from Jesus himself. Because Paul is hitting on the same exact notes that Jesus told his disciples when he was on the Sermon on the Mount. When we were studying Matthew 5-7 through 7, just maybe a few weeks or a few months ago... It was all about not just saying you fear God and not just saying that you keep his commandments, but living in such a way that your actions line up with your words. And so in our private lives, behind closed doors, are we the same person that the church thinks we are? Are we the same person that we want God to think we are? 
And Paul says this goes double for ministers. He tells Titus, you must always be an example. And he gave the same instructions to Timothy. And Timothy, he says, let no one despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In our Sunday morning Bible class, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And we, we talk about some of the problems that the early church faced. And one of the biggest ones was really uh, the newness of the church. And so when we think about the early Christian church, they really had a lack of Christian examples. And so Paul is telling Titus, who is ministering to this, this new church, this growing church, he says, if there is no other Christian example to be found, then Titus, it ought to be you. He said, if you are teaching and preaching, if you are in this position of visibility, really this position of de facto leadership in the church, then you must be modeling for the church the kind of faith that you want them to have. And I read a, a number of ministry books for my, uh, my graduate work this semester, and uh, to be honest, didn't really love a whole lot of most of them, but the, one of the few mustard seeds I picked up was that uh, one gentleman said, the heart of ministry is not doing, it is being. And I had to think about that one for a second. It sounds very Eastern meditative sort of way, and I had to really chew on it, but it, it be, he says, being in a position of spiritual leadership, it, it doesn't matter what you do for people if it doesn't line up with who you are. And that really struck me. And you might be saying by now that, well, okay, well, Terrence, well, you're the minister. Why are you telling us all this? Well, because really in the church, the way the church is structured, it is your job, if you will, to hold me to this standard. And don't get me wrong. I know one day we'll all be judged by the one whom God has appointed, as we kind of touched on this morning. But, but we have a Christian duty to one another to, to keep ourselves accountable, to, to hold each other accountable to the Christian standard. And so just as we have expectations of one another to act a certain way, it is only right for the church, uh, to the congregation, to have expectations of his minister, as laid out in Titus 2 and verse 7 and 8 there. So Paul concludes, uh, he concludes verse 8, but with this reason, he says, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed. That they may be ashamed because they have nothing bad or nothing evil to say about us. And this echoes that same idea from earlier in verse 5 when he says that, that the word may not be maligned, that the word may not be blasphemed, that the word may not be discredited. And so he's saying conduct yourself in this way because you will always be putting a good example on for others. And, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago that in an odd way in the church... We're called to be separate from the world, even though we're in the world. And we're called to stand up for what is right, no matter what the world thinks. But we're also called to care about their opinion just enough that they actually think we might have something worthwhile to say. We want to put on that good image. We want to reflect godliness. We want to, we want to be presenting not just ourselves, but the church and really the God whom we serve in the best light possible. And so how they think of the church, how they think of God, in a sense, does matter at least to the extent that we want to reach those who are lost. And so in the church, whether we're, we're old or young, men or women, preachers, ministers, elders, members, we all really at the end of the day work toward that one goal of reaching the lost. We're, we're all subject to the Great Commission. If, if you've ever heard, there's, there's sometimes called the Lesser Commission where Jesus sends a few of the disciples and he sends them out two by two in the area. The Great Commission is not only because it's a profound, wonderful proclamation, but it was, it was great in the sense that it was large. It was given to all. It was given to all of Jesus' followers. And so all of us have to partake in that mission of reaching the lost, which is just exactly why this, this example of being a healthy a spiritual family is of such great importance.
In Ephesians 4.11, Paul says, He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And he says, for these two reasons, at the end of Ephesians 4.11, he says, to equip the saints for works of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. And I think right there is really the heart of the work of the church. And it's, it's two-dimensional. It is inward, right? We, we encourage one another. We edify one another. We equip, uh, or we encourage each other. We build up the body of Christ. But then it is also outward, that we equip one another to go out into the world to do what he calls the work of ministry. That is spreading the gospel. And so becoming a, a spiritually healthy family takes every member, each of us, working together as one body. Just as we read this morning in Ephesians 4.4, 4, Paul says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. To be a working part of the body of Christ, the one body, means to abandon a life lived in the flesh, a life to sin, and been baptized for the remission of sins into that one faith, baptized into the name of that one Lord, Jesus Christ. If you're with us this evening and you are outside the body, understand that you need not stay that way. But if you're a member of the body and you have a, a request for prayer, you have something we can pray over you for, we can do for you. Won't you come while we stand? Start with bond servants and masters because Paul lists it right there with really the rest of the, uh, the categories in the text. And he talks about this in Colossians 3. He talks about this in Ephesians 6. And in a very similar way, because whenever we, we see Paul talk about Christian households, he often will address three sets of people. He'll address uh, husbands and wives, parents and children, and then he'll almost always address servants and masters. And if we, we think about sort of the typical Greek household, if you were wealthy enough to own a home, you really didn't often just own just a home, but if you were wealthy enough, you had somewhat of an estate. You had land, you had some kind of uh, crop that you were farming, and you had something you were bringing into yourself or something you were providing. And so if you had land and you had a decent-sized home, you often had servants. And we've talked about this before into how the Bible uh, addresses servants or bond servants or slaves, but they were, they were considered part of the, the typical household. And so Paul has some instructions for bond servants. And I actually left my Bible. Hold on. Probably going to need this. But I want to reread just those couple lines. He says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So, even though we don't typically, probably, uh, hopefully if you like your job, you probably don't think of yourself too often as a, a bond servant or a slave, but I think there's some very strong principles that Paul gives servants and masters that I think can really apply to any of us who work uh, just in, in any job. And so I had a couple verses I wanted someone to read for us. Someone read for us 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. <clears throat> So he says, we're servants of the gospel, and we, we seek not to please men, but God who tests our hearts. And then someone get for us Galatians 1.10. Galatians 1.10. Galatians 1.10. Galatians 1.10. Galatians 1.10. Galatians 
So he says, I seek not to please men, but I am a bond servant of Christ. And so I want to think about these two verses, and I want to join them with what he has to say about being well-pleasing and not argumentative. What do you think the, the, the role of either servants or workers or bond servants, what, what do we think? Okay, I guess I'm going, to re, I'm going to restart my question. When we talk about being a Christian in uh, our jobs, we talk about working for God. If I say the phrase working for God, you probably think of a minister, a missionary, uh, somebody who in some form or fashion is supported by a church. But what I want us to think about in these kind of contexts of these verses is what does it mean to work for God and be a welder? What does it mean to work for God and be a pipe fitter? What does it mean to work for God and be a salesperson? What does it mean to work for God and be an accountant? And so I want us to uh, sort of toss this around for a little bit. But if we try to apply verse 9 and 10 for our lives, how might I think of working for God in maybe the job that I have uh, outside the church? Well, I guess I can't say I in that context. The job you have have outside the church. Oh. Okay, so the way you act, uh, being an example, you said, what about your, you said your presence by being there, so like by showing up? Yeah, I, I, that's true, if, if you want to be an example to people, that's, that's true, I've heard that from a couple people that say nowadays that's a pretty good achievement if you can show up consistently. Um, that's a good point, can't, can't be an example to people at your job if you don't have one or you're not showing up to one. Um, so I guess this lesson is not for the retirees, but maybe if uh, if you're in this setting, yeah, we want to be. We always want to be an example wherever we're at. But he said, think of your think of your work not as working for men, but as working for God. And I think this can be tricky depending on our job field and sort of where we are in our lives. But there is something to be said about. It. He said, if if you're a, a Christian, much like when we talked about. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7 and some of those other passages where he says, come to God as you are called. Don't, don't think that if I have to be a Christian, I have to, to leave this job or leave this job. More than likely, you have a job you can have while being a Christian. Figure out how to be a Christian in that job. And I think of, uh, I talk to people kind of a lot, but to some extent we are all called to, be, to do the things that ministers do. Right? Whenever we talk about the things ministers do, what is that? Visit the sick. Preach the gospel, uh, be able to teach the word. These are all things that to some extent all Christians are called to do on some level. So sometimes I think when we, when we think about working for God, we restrict it to maybe these specialized roles. But the truth is that makes up what? One out of every hundred people in the church, if that? And we're a Christian. We go out and do a job. Everybody gives us a job. I'm going to tell you to do this job now. But... And then he goes off. He leaves. Christians, if you're a Christian, you do that job complete. You don't bypass anything on it. You do it the best you can. Well, not being a, a fraud, not being a, a cheat, certainly, or a liar. Yeah, I've seen people say, ah, that pass right there, he'll never know the difference. I've, I've seen that on the job. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. If you're a Christian, you do that, people will notice it. Yeah, and so that that's a good point. Just don't don't do things to generate a, a negative reputation for yourself or the church. And if we can, we can preach and never say a word, 
people just watching us. Yeah. Well, and that, that's kind of what we were talking about is, you know, we, we think of these things that we think of ministers or preachers as doing, but they're most, they're really all things that on some level to different degrees we're all called to do. And so what I talk to people about a lot when we, we talk about the idea of, of calling, you know, because what, what, well, what does calling mean to the rest of us that are not going to be missionaries, not going to be ministers? Well, I, I think it's important to think about what, is, what does calling look like in my job in sales? What does calling look like in my, in my job in the department of the company that, I, that I'm in? Because there's a, a consistent theme when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, that is to live as you are called. And it's this idea of figuring out what it is in your uh, Station in life, I think is the phrase he uses, where you're at in life, how can you live for God in that thing? Because the truth is that the church needs way more what I would call bivocational ministers than it needs full-time ministers. Because there's only so many different churches out there. I understand churches will say we're in a ministry shortage and all this and that, but what, what the, the universal body of Christ really needs is people who can be welders and Christians, people who can be salespeople and Christians, mechanics and Christians, to really maximize their impact. A wise man once said we ought to be a Christian first, then whatever our job title is. Yeah, it is our primary identity, certainly. Karen, it reminds me of the verse, Colossians 3.17, um, whatever we do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. Yes, absolutely. Colossians 3, you said 17. Yeah, I had a couple listed, and sometimes I just don't want to sit here and have people shout out verses for five minutes. We'll spend more time flipping pages than we will talking. But that's, that, I think, is one of the ones I had on my list. Whatever we do, do for the glory of God. I see, I see two things. I s- hey! Stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wondered when I would cross the line. <laughs> You better watch out. You're next. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's good. I don't know why. Oh, this is not going out of line. Hold on. I want a man to be able to get through. No, I'm good. No, I see, I see two things. I see, first of all, we've got to represent the kingdom in our actions. And so whatever we do, we do it as a Christian. But also, we've got to go back and think about what Paul said to the Philippians. Whether I'm a based or abound, I've learned to, to, to be satisfied in my condition. So whether we're a bond servant or whether we're a CEO, we've, we've got to remember that all of this is temporary and that we need to serve God. God comes first and all, and we're, we're moving on to hopefully a home with him if when found faithful. And so two things, we, you, you're going to be okay. Uh, but two things, we've got to represent God while we're here, represent the kingdom while we're here so that we can make a positive influence on those who do not know Jesus, but also we've got to have the attitude that, that you know, my job may not be the greatest, but it's temporary. My station in life may not be the greatest, but it's temporary. Whatever here is temporary, I need to have a long-term focus. And that long-term focus, so both things, be a good representative, but focus on serving the God who created us and, and, and crossing the finish line. Absolutely, and, and that's one of those same things that's in that chapter that I'm, I'm referencing vaguely enough that I'm going to see if I can find it while I am sort of talking about it. But that's another thing he talks about in 1 Corinthians, and that idea of your finding God in your station in life, right there in there, is, is there are many things he says not to worry about or not to devote time and energy to, because, it's, because the Lord is coming back. 
He says, live as if the Lord is coming back. Don't live as if this is the now, but live as if the Lord is coming back. And that if is sort of rhetorical, live because we know he is. So certainly, so I think we've kind of shown that those couple verses, even though we probably don't like to think of ourselves as slaves, well, I've certainly found that way at certain jobs in my life. Um, I think there's a lot that applies to, to where we might be. And he doesn't, he doesn't uh, quite say it in this in Titus 2, but in other passages, he, he also gives instructions to masters, you know, in the same way. Treat your servants fairly. Uh, be honest with them. Treat them in a certain way. And uh, when we were talking about Colossians and Philemon, we talk a lot about how we can, if, if I'm a manager, if I'm an overseer, if I run a company, do I run it in such a way that is, that is Christian, you know? Or am I constantly belittling people? Am I constantly talking down to people? Am I constantly trying to, to squeeze every last dime out of somebody? Am I treating people like, like people, you know? And I think all of us have probably had that experience of a job where they, they treated you like a person, where a job where they treated you like you were a number. And that's a, that's a big difference. It's a big difference. So, okay. Well, uh, I, I think we've gotten a good chunk out of uh, those couple verses. I've got a couple things I wanted to, to move on. I wanted to read for us, by way of example, before we dive back into Titus, I wanted to read for us from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. From 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. And we'll talk about this verse for a little bit. Because I, I want us to think about a couple things, and then we'll jump back to Titus. From First, Tim, First Timothy chapter two, verse nine, he writes: "Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works." So when I first put this in my notes, I thought, I'll ask what people think about that one, and we'll see where that goes. But then I thought, maybe I'll just go ahead and tell you where I'm going first, when we get ourselves into trouble. Um, if we read that, sure. That verse, you know, trying to find out earlier, 1 Corinthians 7, 20 through 24, about being called where you are. If you said uh, verse 20 through 24, from 1 Corinthians 7? Okay, we might come back to that at some point. Um, but, but I read that from 1 Timothy 2.9 because I don't think anybody reads that and says, okay, no gold, no pearls, no braided hair. Maybe you do. Maybe that's how you grew up. Maybe that is where you come from. But I don't, I don't think I've heard that specifically as a command against braiding your hair when you come to church. Um, and luckily there's no one who feels too called out to see anybody with braided hair tonight. But we read that and we say, okay, so what is that really about? How do I apply that to, you know, it's this idea that's rooted in a culture as the scripture is. So how can I apply that principle to today? Well, we would say they should adorn themselves, as he says in the second half of that same sentence. We should be modest. They should adorn themselves modesty with humility, uh, not to be showy. We could go off into sort of the connotations of what dressing a certain way in that culture meant. That if they, they did their hair a certain way or they wore certain jewelry, they were... Um, they were putting on a certain appearance of a certain uh, vocation or trade, if you will. And so he says, don't dress like people who dress like that. Like dress yourself. Wife. <laughs> yeah. You were dancing around it, but like Hosea's wife. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's references to harlotry, essentially, in the language he uses there. And he says, so don't adorn yourself this way, but rather adorn yourself modestly. And so I say that because I want to read that, and then I want to come back to Titus 2. Because... I think Titus 2, especially verse 4 and 5, are some much maligned passages of Scripture. 
So I mentioned this morning that uh, this word, when it says working at home, uh, say managers at home, keepers of the home. Keepers of the home actually is probably the closest to the, the, the translation, but it was just one word. It was a compound word that literally meant home keepers. And I, I would think of it as home hyphen keepers is kind of what I wrote in my notes. And if we think about, again, kind of the typical Greek household, there was the oldest male who was uh, the, the, the head of the family, if you will. They probably worked the land. They had some job that took them out of the house. There was the sons and the daughters, the children, and there was also probably servants who would have tended to the things around the house. And oftentimes, if the, the, the man was working, whether it's in the field or in the city at the market or whatever, outside the home, the woman was in charge of, literally in charge, a manager over almost a staff of four or five different people, whether they be children and servants, who were tending to the other things around the home, uh, managing the business of the home, doing things like that, uh, things that would just happen on the property. And so the, the woman was, in that way, literally a manager of the events of the household. And so when we kind of contrast or we look at them in that context, what he, what he is saying makes sense. But I, I want to pull that out of kind of that context and look at it uh, in ours because in the first century Greek household, there were very clearly defined roles, right? We, we've talked about this a little bit when we looked at Colossians, when we looked at Philemon, that, that men and women had very clearly defined roles that, uh, again, servants and masters had clearly defined roles. Children had very clearly defined roles. And so... Their culture is a little bit different than ours because at least when I, I guess I'll put a disclaimer on this, this next part's about to be my opinion, but many people do not have the luxury of having a stay-at-home parent. Um, I, I don't know what things were like when where you grew up or where I grew up, but I, I grew up in a home where both my parents worked outside the home because they had to, to make ends meet. And I've heard verses like this and this one others as really a way for people in the church to sort of look down on or condescend women who have jobs outside the home. And we can talk all day long about what you prefer or what's right for your family, what's good for your family, and that's all fine and dandy. But I think we need to be careful using the word of God to say a message that it's not saying. And so I said this morning that what verse 4 and 5 look like in your household might be a little bit different than what it looks like in somebody else. But I think we need to be careful uh, not using it to... Uh, look down upon somebody else. And one of the reasons I would say that I think it's pretty clear that this is a, we're, we're diving into a very culturally loaded issue is if we look at 1 Timothy 3, 4, when Paul is talking about elders and he's talking about how uh, the, he mentions about having believing children. He says, how can a man be a manager of the church if he does not manage his own household well? It's actually that same word that in Titus he applies to women about being managers of the household. He, he says, how can, uh, how can a man be... It's, uh, I'll tell you what, someone read, read it for me. It's 1 Timothy 3, 4. From 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. Can you read that first part again? I didn't quite hear you, Miss Brenda. Thank you. So... Uh, and again, I don't want to dovetail us too much off into a conversation about elders and the qualifications. But that is actually some of the same language that he uses here when he talks about managing a household, running the household. And so this is not a, a command to be a stay-at-home parent because nobody would say to be an elder you have to be a stay-at-home dad. That doesn't make any sense. And so it's not a command to be a stay-at-home parent so much it is referring to what I would say the work of caring for children. Anyone want to go out of limb and say caring for children didn't work? <laughs> I, got a, I got availability. We got an extra room if you don't think so. 
Um, but I, so I would, if I'm applying this to today, I would say there is two cautions I would give uh, Christian families when looking at what this looks like to us. So, whether because whether we have both parents working outside the home or just one, I still think there is room to be obedient or to be kind of be out of line with this teaching. If we think about the traditional setting that, that Paul is kind of talking about, and I think for a period of time in this country, this may have been common for many households, but one parent works outside the home and the other tends to maybe the household affairs, takes care of the kids, take care of things around the home, what have you. But I would say outside of that dynamic, there is a still the possibility where both parents work and you both take time to take care of the kids, see to the household affairs and make things run well. But it is also possible if you have both parents working to neglect things like, I don't want to say raising kids because kids still need to find a way to get fed. You leave them long enough, they're going to find things to get into. But again, when we think about just the things that take time about raising children, spending time with them, training them into certain things, teaching them things, helping them with things. Goodness knows they're not learning it in school anymore. Um, but I would argue that it's also possible if you have a dynamic where one parent works in the home and one has a job outside the home, it's still possible for the kind of duty Paul is talking about to fall through the cracks. I. I wouldn't use this example if I was still, if it was from this congregation, but I was talking to a recently married couple um, several years ago who were talking about a lot of problems that was in their family. And I said, well, what's going on? We were talking about it. We were talking about, and because, I mean, anytime when a couple's that young and newly married and they have kids and they're fighting, it's usually about the kids or it's about money. There's, there's a pretty short list of things people fight about at that stage. Anyway, he said one of their big uh, over and over arguments was, they kids were in daycare and he had a job but his wife did not and he said and I'm, again this is not i'm not given this rule that you have to live your life this way or anything but they went back and forth on what their ex they could not agree on what their expectations were i'll just say it that way they could not agree on what the expectations were in their relationship both for each other and to their kids and if you can't agree on that how are you going to have a functional marriage or a functional family I mean, if we think about those three relationships Paul mentions in Ephesians, um, husband and wife, parent, child, and the master servant, or if we view that as our work, those three dimensions, if you can't figure out your expectations in the home, you're failing at two out of three right there, just out of the gate. And in my experience, if you've got problems at the home, you're going to have problems at work eventually. <laughs> like if, if things aren't right at the home, it's going to lead to an imbalance in your home work life. And so what I would, if I'm applying this, I would not just say, oh, he's, he's commanding women to stay at home and take care of the children. What I would say is he's doing is saying whatever your vocation or your work situation looks like, make sure somebody's taking care of the children. Make sure somebody's taking care of just the things in the home. Make sure your, your dynamic and the expectations are clear. And there's many, many things in the Bible we look at when we talk about family dynamics and group dynamics and how we ought to handle things that are biblical principles that I think sometimes are easier for us to see in non-church group settings. Does that make sense? Like, like it's easier to think about sometimes when I think about like a, like a work, making a workplace analogy, or it's easier to think of it outside. Um, well, here, I'll give you another example, because this is something else I want to touch on. And I'll, I'll leave a couple minutes for questions here in just a second. Um, Paul's advice for how older and younger men and women are to behave. I wanted to point out that he starts with the older men and women. And I think that's interesting. Because I think when we talk about church growth, especially kind of post-COVID and figuring out what do we do, how can we draw people back into church, how can we do X, Y, or Z, how can we grow, 
I think churches often very much focus on young people. We've got to get young people back in the church. We've got to keep the young people in the church. And that's absolutely true. Um, there's absolutely that critical stage where, where young people leave the church. But I think it's super interesting that Paul starts by addressing the older crowd. And if I could make kind of a, a workplace analogy, if the people, the seasoned veterans, you know, the grizzled veterans who've been at that place for a long time, if they're acting in a way that is out of step with what the technical policy is, right, or what the rule book says or whatever, if they're out of step with how people want them to behave and nothing happens, what are the new people we hire on going to do? They're going to do the same thing. So whether that's clocking out for lunch early or showing up late or sleeping on the job, if you tolerate it from the people who have been there a long, long time and the new people show up, are they going to show up and think, you know what, just for fun, I'm going to outwork everybody. Every so often somebody might, right? But when they see that they're not rewarded for it and nothing happens to the people who aren't doing it, what are they eventually all going to do? They're all going to fall into those same pitfalls and traps. That they, and so I think this is a very sound biblical principle that if we look outside the church, it's a lot easier to see sometimes than it is inside the church. And so when we think about the, just the dynamics of our, our congregation or any congregation, I think we're very easily drawn to kind of the fuel and the fire and the energy that comes with bringing a lot of young people in, especially a lot of kids. And, and we all love being in a, in a class or a VBS setting where it's full of young kids and they're full of energy. And I mean, we, I did VBS last summer for the first time in I don't know how many years, and it was, it was so fun. I didn't know what I was doing half the time, but it was really fun just because they, they bring an energy that, is, that we're drawn to. But in order for that to go anywhere, and in order to bring people in who are actually maturing in their faith... Any church needs that, that backbone generation. It needs those people who form the backbone of the church. It needs those people who, who, are, who are the older crowd. It needs those people who have, who have been there and done that. You know, it needs those people who have been through a little bit of life. And so I, I didn't really get the chance just for time to dive too much into this this morning. But if we think about just the, the dynamics of a church... He addresses the older crowd first because I think he wants them to understand that they are really in a very important position of responsibility when it comes to how they behave. Because they are going to be the role models for the younger people who come to the church. And when I say young, I really mean young in age and young in faith. Because we're talking about young people growing up, but also the, those we bring in from the outside. And so what he, what, what he has to say here is of very great importance. And like I said, it, it's sometimes hard to see it play out in the church, but I think if we think about a workplace or we think about a family, it's very easy uh, to, to, to understand the wisdom there. Thoughts and comments so far? Yes, sir, Mr. Steele. Uh, sometimes people don't think about somebody being sick and they have to take over the, the part of their lives, do the part of their lives, and also do the part of what they have to do outside. And sometimes it's hard to do both things because you've heard people say, women say, you can't do anything done. And it's great. Because I know I've tried to take care of everything in the house, try to take care of everything outside. I can't do it. It's, it's too much. And so it's, everybody needs to know that yeah, that's excellent. Oh yeah, and I've seen truthfully, I've seen that play out a handful of times where, where 
one, either husband or wife is sick, and the, the other spouse is maybe there, they're at church, but boy, they got, they got bags under their eyes. They're moving slow. They're low energy. They ain't saying a whole lot. Why? Well, because the other wife's sick, and they're, they're, they feel like they're working overtime, right? And that's a good point to, to keep in mind, not just, in fact, I think uh, <laughs> the running joke lately has been, we're praying for Joe and his shoulder, but we're praying for Renee too, because she's got to put up with Joe. <laughs> I'm just going to pick on Joe, because he knows I love him. But, but that's, a, that's a very good and a very serious point. That Yeah, that, and that goes back to that idea of, you know, what, whatever your, in your relationship you have agreed on the expectations, you, you better have them, right? <laughs> you better know what they are, and you better know when, when one person needs to pick up the slack or not. Excellent point. Other questions or comments so far? We've got a, a couple minutes before I'll close this up in, the, in our closing prayer. But I, I, we touched on a lot of what I would say are hot-button probably issues in some way or another. And this is another one of those things that kind of like I mentioned this morning. I think way too often when we talk about what the Bible has to say about an issue, the reason the world doesn't listen is because they just don't think it's valuable. You know, sometimes it's because they don't know. Sometimes it's because they don't believe it. But I think a lot of issues, well, well that's, that's just not relevant anymore, right? That, doesn't, that just doesn't fit the standard of today. That's just not realistic. And so I think it is of such great importance that we understand what the Bible has to say about families, but are able to apply it to families in a way that, that really demonstrates for people that it is. And, I mean, one of the best ways to, to prove that is to live it out, right? If we are living in accordance with what God's Word is, and people see that our, our families are happy and functioning, and there's, there's good spiritual fire kind of being stoked there, people will look to that. So we gotta remember as a Christian more out in the world, we gotta remember Galatians six ten. There's gonna be opportunities every day that we can do. That's true. Now there's responsibility like you and your wife going down the road, the car stops on the road, you got your children weed. What if you stop and there's some bad guys that take you out the first thing? Well what's going out to the rest of that family? We got that situation. Oh yeah. To contend with. We see too many police cars circled around cars coming through Dover every day. Mm. Now, I've stopped a few times and have people. Now, if we're walking down the road, somebody laying in the road. One man walked around the road from the Bible. Right. He walked on the other side of the road. That's... One guy stopped, picked him up, took him to the next town. But that's an excellent point. One of, another one of those things they... They tell us in ministries, they say, look, as a minister, you're responsible to the church, but your first ministerial task is to your family. Yes, so uh, we, we have a certain duty to each other, but also certainly to the church. I want to talk about this for a couple minutes. Um, when we talk about this idea of intergenerational ministry or, or including all people of all ages uh, coming in and modeling these things, ideas, why, what does it mean to you when I, when I say that phrase there, intergenerational or a multi-generational church? When I talk about a multi-generational church, what does that mean to you? Okay, that's one way to look at it. I've been going here for four generations or what have you. Okay, interesting. People of all ages. Why do we think having people of all ages is important for church growth? Just based on some of the things we've talked about and just the principles right here in Titus. Because there's people of all ages that need to be around Christians to be taught. I mean, yeah, wouldn't you got the older to set the example, the younger to follow the older example because they've been set 
Yeah, absolutely. Say, say that again. That's true. We we uh, that that's kind of the saying, right? That the young people are the future of the church. But well, that's true. But the, the middle aged to the older ones, the, the non young ones, are now with the church. <laughs> so we, we we absolutely need both. Um, and I'll tell you, it's. Uh, it's important because it's in God's model right there as it kind of laid out in Titus. It's important because I, I think if we live this out, we will see that it leads to growth. But man, it, it, when we I ended our, our service this morning with just kind of this question, you know, do you, do you think about the Dover Church of Christ being the place that you want your kids to grow up in spiritually, that you want your grandkids to grow up in spiritually? And if so, you know, what are we doing in the next 10, 20, 30 years to make it that way? I'll tell you, I, I may have mentioned this before. But if you've ever been a part of a church that is dying, well, that's not a very encouraging sight. I will never forget I preached somewhere in an auditorium in a very old, beautiful building, very part of downtown Tulsa. That auditorium must have held 500 to 700 people. And there was about 30. And I mean, you talk about one of the more like just gut-punching places to go up there and speak to. Because what, what you had seen was a church that had slowly... And I get that sometimes this happens, population shifts, we move, people move away, things change that are not in our control. But something we can do that is in our control is to be a, a community that he, he lays out for us in Titus 2, where we, we, we recognize and expect contributions from people of all ages, not just, just one or the other. So last closing, I guess, parting shots and closing remarks. You know, you take what, was, what you thought of today. The instructions given to older men, younger men, 